0: Today on Talk with Claude, we asked Paul Elam to tell us about his book, Men-Women Relationships.
1: Well, I started asking my clients, and the very first client that I asked, who and I had known this guy for three weeks. I had been seeing him regularly for three weeks as a part of his treatment. I had no idea that just a few months before he came into treatment, His wife had waited for him to go to sleep and then bashed him over the head with a fireplace poker. All right, so I'm here
0: with Paul Elam of A Voice for Men. Welcome, Paul. Hello, welcome. We'll introduce you a little bit to maybe a a new audience, and I think we have to keep doing that over and over again as people grow older and some of the uh, youngsters that might have been around... uh, not quite ready to hear what you have to say, uh, might be just at the right age now, right? So,
1: oh, well, I know when I was young, I wasn't ready for what I have to say, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So, can you give me a little bit of background? I find for myself there was a lot of big influence just even with my childhood and, and what I viewed as a normal relationship between my parents and, and with the family, and of course, that ended up breaking down. So, um just to, to know a little bit about what your influences are and your memories of marking moments in, in your family life was like.
1: Well, I'm a pretty average guy, actually. I was I'm 62 years old. I was born in the mid 1950s. Uh, uh, Son in a military family of three boys. We traveled the world quite a bit. Uh, Didn't have roots any place in particular, but was pretty common for the times. There was a lot of military families that did a lot of of moving around and um, had the typical dysfunctions of most families too. Uh, There was drinking, there was drug use, there was uh, different forms of abuse, uh, nothing life ending, nothing, I mean, maybe some life altering things, but nothing that... uh, Put me on a path for prison or, or anything like that, just sort of the, uh, the typical peccadillos of American life uh, growing up as a child born in the 50s and raised through the 60s and 70s where everybody learned to hate their parents um, <laughs> and that was sort of a rite of passage at the time. Um, my influences, um, the 60s were a big influence on my young formative mind, on seeing rebellion, and challenging the the modern paradigm of the times. Uh, that was a big influence on me. And it, and it certainly uh, made me look at authority with a different view, uh, certainly a much different view than my father had, who was a, he was a product of two wars, uh, a depression era baby. And so we had vastly different worldviews. Uh, his was one of law and order and trusting authority and mine was the idea that trusting authority would get you killed and uh, between the two of us i was probably the one who was more correct uh in in that situation but i found his wisdom later in life in many things and you'll see that reflected a lot uh, in different ways in the book i've written
0: and uh yeah military families have their own brand of dysfunctionalities i find uh, for having worked
1: with the military Your parents stayed married the whole time, or...? My parents stayed married for 42 years until the day my father died. Um, And it was, by all standards, a functional marriage between two people who loved each other very much. Um, uh, My father developed Alzheimer's disease uh, due to his exposure to Agent Orange in Vietnam. And it put him in an early grave, but she took care of him 24-7. Uh, for the last few years of his life when he couldn't take care of himself. So while it was, you're right, military families do have their own uh, special brand of dysfunction, there was also loyalty there and uh, a matter of ethics that were honored that you don't see in a lot of uh, other families.
0: Yeah, definitely. And uh, obviously that might have created some expectations on your part as to what Married life and devotion of uh, a wife
1: might be like. And God help me, it did. <laughs> <laughs>
0: my God, it played out exactly the way you expected. Uh, and I no. know. That's not
1: <laughs> Once again, my parents' world and my world turned out to be two very, very different places. So, give me a sense of. Um,
0: I know you mentioned in your book that you worked as a trucker. Um, how, how does that fit in the timeline with your work in psychology, the
1: addiction center? And... They are blended and melded. I switched back and forth between those professions for over 12 years. Okay. Um, I would work uh, in the counseling field until I'd had my fill of the stress in that work. And then I would as- literally escape into blue-collar work which had its own brand of stress. Um, You know, it wasn't an escape from stress, but it was an escape from one type of stress into another type, uh, which I found easy to, a lot more palatable. Uh, So I would work in a white collar world doing white collar things until I got very sick of that, which happened on a regular basis. Uh, And then I would get into the blue collar world and I enjoyed the isolation of trucking. Uh, it allowed me to write. As a matter of fact, I launched a voice for men from behind the wheel of a semi uh, because that was the profession that gave me the opportunity to sit and write. Well, I can see... Say... But not while I was driving. Would no, but... <laughs> <laughs> hope
0: not. Um, but, yeah, you have those breaks, mandatory breaks you have to take and you have a lot of time and you have no nobody to disturb you and I I can relate to two things uh, as far as that goes Um, uh, one you described in your book the uh, white knuckling white knuckle driving you're doing in Colorado so I'm out here in Western Canada and I I just spent a year driving the Rogers pass winter uh, oh wow I I can certainly um, relate to the type of roads that you have been driving
1: and uh, you know them
0: yeah I know yeah and there's a lot I see a lot of accidents on that road and every every couple of days there's one in the ditch I was driving uh driving uh, smaller trucks but still you you see the chaos that uh
1: that you're exposed to and you're just hoping your number isn't up so um No and when you're going through those passes the trucks don't feel that small No <laughs> And um and the other thing is, I, I
0: actually owe a lot to truckers because uh, a, f- a friend of mine who started off as a tenant at my place and uh, uh, got me on a, a low carb diet a couple of years ago. Uh, and he got all his information from the podcast he was listening to. And he's now uh, sold this truck and he's uh, a nutritional therapist that he just completed his course recently. So, wow. Um, and I was dealing with health issues that I've been going to the doctor for probably upwards of 10, 15 years, and they couldn't solve it. Of course, a, a trucker had to solve it for me. So,
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah, it's the new world out there. Yes, it is. And it's been a great motivation for me to actually get out there and, and uh, get the information out and, and further that. I, I certainly noticed that you know people are growing, and there's always a new audience out, out there. So I'm glad to do it with you today. Um so during the years working as a mental health counselor, you're working day to addiction? Yes. Yeah. And uh, can you describe a, a, a bit your day-to-day and your relationships with the clientele there and, and with the staff?
1: Sure. Well, most of the time, a pretty typical setup. I worked at residential facilities for the most part. I did have a private practice where I saw outpatients, but most of my work was done in residential facilities where I carried a caseload of uh, 15 to 20 clients and uh, did a couple of groups a day. Uh, and of course, then there's case, case management activities of justification of a stay, dealing with insurance companies, demonstrating to them why somebody needed to be funded for treatment, um, uh, that in particular became one of the stresses that I had to deal with that would often send me off into blue collar work uh, because as insurance companies became more and more intrusive and more tight fisted with money, um, I could end up spending two hours on a phone per client uh, every other day just for the insurance. To a clerk on the other end of the line. Um, why an individual needed treatment. And I was justifying it to somebody that had a little list in their hands. They knew nothing about addiction, nothing about addiction treatment, nothing about the needs of clients. They were just listening for specific words and terms to be used. And you had to get those words and terms right, or they would deny care. And then you had to, to discharge the patient, whether they were ready or not, and send them down the road. So if you ever had any love for bureaucracy that took care of it, It took care of it completely. Yes. Um, It was enough to make me want to drive a truck. Yeah.
0: (laughs) For sure that puts it into perspective. And I think it's one of those things, you know, when you're young, you're like, oh, we have this need, the government should do this, the government should do that. And as you grow older, you're like, I wish the government would touch a single thing because they just make everything worse, right? So uh, from um, listening to the Red Pill movie is where I actually first saw your work. Uh, You describe how at the addiction center, the men and the women, you didn't feel they were treated the same or with the same level of responsibility. Uh, Now,
1: I don't recall exactly because the movie was uh, a while back now and I, I didn't really... Well, I can reiterate that uh, easily enough, and it it really wasn't a feeling. It was a total and complete fact. Um, We evaluated every woman who came to the door for treatment for whether or not she had been a victim of domestic violence or violence in the home prior to being admitted to the facility. And we evaluated every man who was admitted for whether or not he had been a perpetrator of violence. We did not ask men if they were victims, and we did not ask women if they were perpetrators. And this included not asking about whether or not they perpetrated violence on their children. Now, if you can imagine a raging alcoholic mother, she might have committed violence on her children at one point or another. Matter of fact, almost all of them do. It's part of the condition. But we didn't ask, because the narrative is not to ask about violent women. The narrative is to ask about violent men. So that's what we did. And back in 93 was when I read The Myth of Male Power. That was what sort of my first red pill dose, Warren Farrell's uh, book. And I stayed up probably three, three and a half days, almost not sleeping, reading that book. And um, I was angry at the end of it, because I had known all this time there was something wrong but I couldn't put my finger on it. For instance, I knew there was something wrong with just asking guys if they had been violent and just asking women if they had been victims of violence, but I was so brainwashed by the society I lived in, I couldn't quite put my finger on what was wrong with that picture. Uh, After reading The Myth of Malpower, I could, and I started asking questions, including asking questions of my peers professionally, of why we were doing this this particular way. And the result was instant hostility, uh, instant anger on their part. Why was I asking this? Why was this important? We all know that it's men that are violent. And we all know that it's women that are victims. Well, I started asking my clients. And the very first client that I asked, who and I had known this guy for three weeks. I had been seeing him regularly for three weeks as a part of his treatment. I had no idea that just a few months before he came into treatment, his wife had waited for him to go to sleep and then bashed him over the head with a fireplace poker while he was sleeping. And he had received many stitches in the top of his head and he was able to show me the scar. That's what happens when you don't ask. Uh, You don't find out. And of course, so here I had the reality of what my clients were telling me. what the research said, then we had the reality of what mental health professionals were willing to talk about and what they weren't willing to talk about. And they didn't want to talk about violent women and they didn't want to talk about men who were victims.
0: And uh, you expect, it's one thing to expect that kind of attitude from people who, who aren't in the know, but for people working in the profession, that's devastating. Now, to your knowledge, what kind of statistics actually represent the percentage of men and women that are victims of domestic
1: violence? I would say roughly it's about half and half. You know, there, is, there has been thousands of studies, and each one of them come out with slightly different results. Uh, but if you look, and I can provide you a link uh, for your viewers for this, if you look at Martin Fibert's work at the University of Southern California, Uh, who's done a comprehensive collection uh, meta-analysis of somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 studies uh, involving a quarter of a million aggregate individuals on surveys. Uh, They demonstrate that women are slightly more prone to violence and to aggression in relationships than men.
0: Well, I mean, that's one thing as a a young boy that you learn, you can let things uh, escalate to violent behavior, but between men, you have to temper that because it can turn against you, right? Whereas uh, I'm guessing little girls who get taught that they can hit boys, but boys can't hit back might not have quite the same uh, hold back on their uh, physical violence And when that translates with children, I mean, that's another ballpark altogether, right?
1: Well, yeah. And I mean, what you consider in that also, too, is that girls are socialized to be excused for um, what's called relational aggression. And there's a lot of studies on that. That... Girls are more prone to ostracize people, to indulge in gossip, in bad-mouthing people, in sabotaging reputation, and enlisting proxy violence, getting one boy to beat up another boy. And this is often the way that girls, but still in the end, when they become adults, women are slightly more prone to hit and kick and bite and scratch in relationships than men are. Um, and that is also considering that men are prone to underreport report this. A lot of men don't want to admit that they've been physically abused in relationships because it interferes with their sense of masculinity. Uh, so they won't report it. Women tend to underreport report their violence. Um, so the numbers may even be skewed more. But overall, we're really looking at, a half and half situation, and it's important to keep it that way because it's it's really important to understand that violence is most typically reciprocal. It's two people engaged in combat with each other in one form or another, where there's an exchange of violence. There's two participants. Sometimes in, this, in the great minority of cases, it is one individual unilaterally committing violence to get against another uh, who is not fighting back. In that situation, 70% of that violence is committed by women.
0: Yeah, and I can relate to that in my own family. My parents never got physical on a regular basis as far as violence goes. There was a lot of verbal violence. But um, shortly before the separation, uh, the the initial story was my father pushed my mother and she hurt her hip and this and that. Uh, upon further investigation she admitted that she just freaked out and started slapping him and he tried to get away and there was nowhere to go so he just pushed her back so that's a very different context but of course that's never the first story that comes out
1: no it's not
0: now uh as far as your swallowing red pills (laughs) let's say was that would you say that was a fairly sudden thing a slow onset and how willing were you to talk about what you were, you know, when I started finding out a lot of things that don't really align with the mainstream, I was very vigorously kind of testing out what I found out by talking to people with not always the best results. I'm just kind of wondering how it was for you. Was it just kind of a slow onset and then you realized, you know, a lot of people weren't willing to listen
1: or? Um, Well, it was a very 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 rapid onset for me i mean it was in a period of a couple of days of reading that book that i literally went from walking one direction to another it, all the lights came on everything that i couldn't explain before suddenly had some sort of manageable explanation behind it things made sense where they they hadn't been before and um i i suppose just as a a function of my personality as an individual I didn't waste any time talking about it uh, with people. I brought it up at work. I, I mean, and I got to see this in very profound ways at work. When we talk about this bias of only seeing violent men and not seeing violent women, we're talking about a mental health provision, a profession that has children slipping through the cracks all the time that are victims of violence, simply because practitioners don't want to see it and they don't want to ask the right questions. Uh, you brought that up a few moments ago, the the seriousness of the idea of mental health professionals living in denial about research. And this research is abundant and it's out there. There's no hiding this. Uh, it, it's certainly available to people, but first they have to be willing to understand what it means. and. What I found back in 93 was that most of the people in the mental health profession were not interested at all in understanding what the research meant, nor are they in 2019. Um, This is a terrible problem, and now we have the American Psychological Association going out there um, endorsing things like these god-awful Gillette commercials and, and making toxic masculinity the focus of the psychological establishment and sending the message that it's bad to be a boy. I mean, and they can can try to deny this all they want to. And they do deny, oh no, we're not saying all men are bad. Yes, they are. They absolutely are. They're saying masculinity is bad. This is what our mental health profession is doing. Uh, So it's officially worse now than it was back in 93. In 93, it was just ignorance and a few feminist ideologues that didn't like men. Now, it's the entire establishment.
0: Yeah, well, maybe I have a more optimistic optimistic view of that in that, yes, there's a lot more gender feminism uh, in mainstream, but there's also a lot less people listening to mainstream. And I see this last push at these I call insane, uh, just pushing this insane kind of perception of men as kind of the last throws. Because they know the information is out now. There's enough people on, on non mainstream channels and there's more and more people getting interested in actually finding out proper information about health, about relationships. Um, so that's kind of their last-ditch effort. Uh, and, you know, for the most part, that Gillette commercial did
1: not go down very well, so that's... No, it didn't. It didn't. It was downvoted into oblivion, and, and rightfully so. So you may be right. Uh, maybe these, there is more reason for optimism. Um, I'm discouraged because this is still the official voice of the psychological establishment, and it's a voice of hate. And that is, I find that incredibly disturbing.
0: Yeah, that's that's really unfortunate that the, the one place where we should get the truth is the place we can't get it, and quite the contrary, for sure.
1: The one place where it is our job to plumb the depths of human identity and consciousness with compassion and with understanding, and we've turned that into a hate movement, it's absolutely despicable and these are not good people doing this what do
0: you um put it to uh is it the higher education system uh, infiltration of ideologies at the highest level or
1: absolutely this goes to the feminist uh, invasion into the humanities into um uh, higher level education Uh, especially the humanities and fields like psychology, where they waltzed in and were allowed to take over. Um, And this is part of, I think, a Marxist agenda that's been there for a long time and they have been brilliantly successful at it. Um, We were just having a discussion recently among my peers about this article, and I forget, Time, Washington Post, uh, one of those publications, about young angry women and fathers needing to validate their anger because what was happening is they were going to colleges, perfectly adjusted, happy young women uh, coming out of their families. And after a year and a half to two years of being indoctrinated by these professors, they were furious at their fathers, furious at patriarchy, felt like victims, felt like they could never make it anywhere because they're part of an oppressed class. This is what, and that has been translated into psychological work. Um, that's the psychology we're teaching now. It's a horrible mess, uh, absolutely horrible. So, you, you're asking if it's ideologues in higher education, you better believe it is.
0: Yeah, and I, I've seen it uh, happen like in everyday life fairly quickly. I remember, um, you know, participating with uh, some. Uh, let's say with the what is it, Occupy Wall Street uh, movement in 2010, 2011 mainly being um, thrown on my back by the fact that you know we had built too many houses so God forbid should anybody live in them. So everybody was getting kicked out of their house and you know I had a lot of compassion for <laughs> that kind of situation and trying to understand what what caused that and I was working side by side with uh, some people that, Six years down the road, people that I was able to have a decent conversation uh, about solving world problems, all of a sudden, you know, my opinion meant nothing because I had 40-year-old man syndrome, and I was part of the patriarchy, and I'm part of the problem, and, and uh, so I asked them a few questions about what they were talking about. And none of them could really explain it. The, the the answer is always, well, it's not my duty to educate you on you know why you're so bad. There are plenty of books. I'll give you the books, and you go read them. I'm I just tearing what's left of my hair out.
1: <laughs> so don't it, it, pull your hair out. Just twirl your mustache. <laughs> <laughs> give them what they want. Yeah.
0: But um yeah I'm surprised how quickly people just flipped around. And I think there's been a real um effort by the powers that be to really cause this um this polarity in in the uh average person's opinion. Uh I, I don't think I've seen the world more polarized than this in my lifetime.
1: Thank you, academics.
0: Yeah. Um so from the time you read that book to you ended up leaving the practice entirely now right
1: well i still counsel people with addictions now um, Personal practice. I, I, I do it online and i counsel men going through high conflict divorces and other things so i have not a, a, at all left what i do but i left the organized profession entirely um, I think it burnt down a long time ago, we just didn't notice. Um, What was the timeline there between you kind of waking up to these truths and uh, leaving that? Oh, by a few years after the turn of the century, 2005, 2006, I said, I'm done. Okay. So now you've you've compiled
0: a lot of the things that you've been working on and you wrote uh, this book, Men and Women Relationships um so let's talk about that now uh, okay so when uh, when did you decide that it was time to write a book because you've been doing this work for a while
1: now yeah i've had uh, probably oh two or three years after tom golden and my partner both pestered me uh to do it um i enjoyed essay writing i enjoyed doing my video scripts um and i've co-written a few books uh, but had not done anything just on my own. And the more they pestered me, the more sense they made that. And I thought, because what this book has to offer, I believe, is just a way for men to re-envision themselves. And it, it is that's the objective of this collection of essays and work, is for men to have the opportunity to re-envision themselves Outside of the realm of women's approval, outside of the realm of social approval. And I also intended to be an examination of how men are brainwashed uh, by culture, uh, by society, by relationships, and uh, by other men in particular too. Um, But I thought it was a good idea because one of the things I note out of the thousands of men that I've worked with in the past 35 years, that whatever problems they present at the beginning of starting their personal journey into work, they end up at relationships. I mean, they may have a drinking problem, they may have vocational problems, they may have conflict with their bosses they don't know how to handle. But whatever they come in to start off talking to me about, by the time we've been at it for a few sessions, you start hearing about them and women. That's what you end up, that's the real problem. That's what's going on in their lives. Not that their other problems aren't real, they are, but at the core of what bothers them most in life is the difficulty coexisting with women or difficulty even dating them or understanding and now... I mean, we have a society, the women are crazy. I mean, by and large. And, and I say this as a guy w- with a partner of 17 years who I love very much. And uh, many of my closest friends also, long-term relationships, long-term marriages. I'm not knocking that at all. But what I hear over and over again is a line of men telling me that they want to pull their hair out by the roots because no matter what they do, they can't satisfy her. No matter what they do, it's not good enough. No matter what they do, they feel belittled and small. And no matter how much they succeed, it's not enough. And there is so much power in that. When we look at the fact that men kill themselves at four times the rate of women, that's not something we should just acknowledge intellectually and move on that should be a whoa stop what's going on here and we shouldn't we should be like a dog with a bone about this what is happening and i think the information points to the way we socialize men i mean feminists give you the line that uh, patriarchy hurts men too because we tell boys don't cry and they can't express their feelings near as well as women which uh, what a line of shit all of that is men are more stoic by nature. But they're so keen on wanting us to change the nature of men, the way they do things, except for one area, chivalry. They don't want you to re-examine that. If it means you're sacrificing for women, oh, that's good. And if it's not good enough, then you should sacrifice more. Feminists are traditionalists. They're They're the same... People in a different wrapper that we've always had in men's lives. And again, that is a lot of the driving energy behind compiling these essays into a book to make sense of all this. We do need to re-examine masculinity. Men need to re-examine masculinity on their own terms, not according to what a feminist wants, not according to what women tell them, but on their own terms, in their own way. And they need to examine what it is that they struggle for and work for? What do they risk their lives for? And what is their reward for it?
0: Yeah, I think uh, that was uh, quite a bit said there. Uh, to, one thing, to go back to women are crazy, uh, I'm not sure what the statistic is, but it's something like
1: one in four women are anti antidepressors now. So... And, 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 that is, and antidepressants are not a medication for narcissism. Uh, you know, they're to treat that's depression. That's just depression, yeah. Yes, that's just yeah. depression. And <laughs> look at the personality disorders that are out there, the percentage. Some people say now that, that up to 20% of the population is personality disordered, either narcissistic or borderline. Well, yeah. So your chances at getting a borderline woman, which can be terribly dangerous, and they do, they drive men to death many times. That's like one in five. Yeah. And then there's borderline traits, which is like borderline, but it's not the full personality. That's at least twice as many of that. You're, then you have the factor that we raise women to believe that they're victims, that men owe them. Uh, that, that, that men are obligated to pay some historical debt for patriarchy or whatever it is, the crap they're teaching in college, you compound that with personality disorders, with a sense of entitlement that's outrageous. And you have a literal minefield for men to walk in with women. And if they're not conscious of where they're walking, they're going to step on one in most cases. I know very few men who have even one or two gray hairs that can tell me they've gotten out of relationships with women unscathed. We've all been hurt. Yeah. And we don't talk about it. And feminists don't want us to talk about that. That's why they call me a whiner for bringing this up as, Oh, you're just barely poor men, uh, especially poor white men. Um, but this does need to be talked about. This is exactly what men need to start thinking about up here. And I think we have to mention uh,
0: traditionally a, a certain amount of devotion in a situation where, you know, you go back, I don't know, our biology, right? So you go back a thousand years and a woman is basically pregnant and vulnerable from the age 15, 16 till Almost at that point till her death, because uh, you know you you die a lot earlier, and you probably were still capable of reproducing, and there was no birth control. Uh, so there is a biology there of men as protectors, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Come the new modern situation where men want to be every bit a man's, uh, women want to be every bit a man's equal, and but now they still want everything that the man as a provider and the man, and we'll talk about this when we get on your session on man here, but they've got very traditional roles for men, but they want everything else too, right? So that's quite a different Well,
1: and it's important to remember, yes, biologically, sure, there is, it's understandable that we have wired into us a a biological imperative to protect women. Um, it, It makes sense in the reproductive scheme And in so many other ways, if you look back historically, when, you know, if men didn't stand at the entrance to the cave, something rather nasty and hairy would come in and eat everybody, Um, that's certainly part of the picture that we have to look at. But this is 2019, and right now we live in an age where a woman can pick up a smartphone and make one phone call and have a man removed from his home, stripped of all of his property, stripped of his children, stripped of his freedom and placed in indentured servitude for the remainder of the children's lives until they become adults. That's how much protection women need uh, in this culture as a rule. We have technological equalizers. Yes, I'm a big fan of the Second Amendment. And I think if women are afraid of, of being assaulted, being sexually assaulted, There's no reason for them not to be able to carry weapons to prevent that, to take care of themselves, and to be able to use them without fear that the law is gonna come after them uh, if they use them in a legitimate uh, act of self-defense. We don't need to protect women the way we used to. We don't. I mean, our biology will tell us we need to. We'll feel guilty when men will naturally, if they see a woman, strange woman, never saw her before, On the side of the road with a flat tire, they will literally want to put their hand up and not see driving by because they feel guilty looking at that and driving off without stopping to help. That's the way we're wired. But we better start paying attention to the fact there was just a guy in Australia that was let out of prison a week ago. He'd been in prison a few months. He stopped to help a woman on the side of the road and she falsely accused him of sexually assaulting her, and he got put in a maximum security prison awaiting trial until they figured out there was CC footage, CCTV footage, of the whole thing in which it demonstrated he didn't do anything but try to help her. Um, We need to start teaching our boys to keep driving.
0: Yeah, and most of the time, that's not what's gonna happen. And it's sad, actually, to talk that way because there shouldn't be that extra risk to men who are willing to lay everything down. When you look at the military, um, police, I mean, when a woman's in trouble with her man, she
1: calls another man, so... (laughs) Yes, Uh, women have always had that power. And that's one of the things that the book by Farrell did for me was he challenged our notions of power. He made me rethink what is power. I mean, naturally, if you just look at uh, if you look at the Earth, you think it's flat, but you, you find out with a little research that it's not. And if you look at people, if you look at men compared to women, it's easy to assume that men do have all the power. They have all the physical power. They're the CEOs. They're the the people running government. Women have lots and lots of power. That's secretive that we're not allowed to talk about. People get mad at you if you talk about women's power. Uh, Tell the outright truth about it. People would become furious with you for talking about that power because that's supposed to be a secret. We're supposed to let women use that power without even acknowledging it's there. Um, It's another reason to write a book.
0: Yeah. I was actually
1: explaining to
0: uh, <clears throat> some young youngsters I work with when I'm not doing this, uh, the concept of female privilege. What's that? And uh, yeah, but it's not about me. So let's talk about that cover. I gotta admit, I saw the cover and made me hesitate, but I know, <clears throat> I know enough about your work to, to trust in, in going in and purchasing the book i am in a relationship of 20 years and we've had situations and we've overcome them and i know that a lot of the stuff i found in your work has certainly helped put that into context by the way my spouse uh, loves your work very much too so that's just a reason to keep her in itself Uh, that's a (laughs) good reason but um yeah so let's talk about the cover there's the first kind of look at it, you're, you've got, you know, basically a man holding a woman's head, and that's a, a piece of work, right, a piece of art that uh, that's pictured there. But there's a further analysis that could be done
1: on that, so please walk us through it. Well, yeah, and I knew, I mean, one of the things you asked me in advance of this talk about whether I was trolling people with this... Um, I think probably to some degree the trolling is built in and I consider it a plus, uh, that, uh, we're able to troll with, but also there's a very honest intent to this imagery. Uh, the image on the cover of the book is a Perseus holding up the head of Medusa, the Gorgon. And, uh, this is out of mythology, of course. Uh, Perseus was a slayer of monsters. Uh, there you go. Um, and he the the thing about the Gorgon, she was once a very beautiful woman, had tons of female power that got transformed into monstrous power uh, when she became this snake-headed demon that if you looked upon her face, you would turn to stone. And, and many had tried to slay her and they had all been wiped out because they had to look at her at some point to try to kill her. And Perseus was smart and wily and he held up his shield and backed toward her looking at the reflection and then turned and cut off her head with one swipe and he turned around and he gave her head to Athena to use as a, uh, on her shield as a weapon. Um, the point here isn't that I just randomly picked that imagery uh, for the cover. There is one of the essays called The Plague of Modern Masculinity, which is part of the subtitle uh, of the book, goes into that story and explains that for men to overcome gynocentrism of the kind we've been talking about, we've just spent the last few minutes talking about this power of women and everything, and only we didn't name it. And the name for all this power is gynocentrism. And for men to overcome gynocentrism in their own lives and to act consciously instead of by gynocentric impulses, which constantly get them into trouble. You know, we've always referred to this as thinking with your dick. Well, yes, it's thinking with your dick, but it's actually, if we want to be a little less crude about it, it is gynocentric impulses in men. We think of women first, take care of them, protect them, win their approval, get them to want to have sex with you, All these things that are all focused on putting all our energy into women's approval and acceptance. Well, until we overcome that demon within ourselves, we can't act consciously. We can't look at a woman and have all these sexual feelings come up and tell ourselves, wait a minute. All right, this feels good. But keep your eye open for the warning signs of what can be there. And there are warning signs in women that tell us they will destroy our lives if we become connected to them. And they're right there, they're up front, but we don't see those things because of gynocentrism. So the idea of the metaphor here, Claude, is that if you cut off the head of that demon, if you master that, then you can act consciously and you can connect with women And you can push the garbage aside and you can push the danger aside and you can be less vulnerable all the time. And it really is a skill that men are in dire need of. Most men, and this is something that just still flabbergasts me about men, their only standard in a woman is whether or not she's attracted and reciprocates his attraction. If she's pretty... And likes him too. She qualifies. That's it. That's the only standard. That's the wow. only thing that matters.
0: That was my uh, one of my main points talking about female privilege. I said to the the person, "Well, think of what you have to do to get a man to have sex with you, and think of what I'd have to do, and measure that. That's privilege. Because sure, I mean, you might spend an hour putting on makeup, but." You know, putting money in a wallet and taking you out and figuring out what it is that will make a difference, and then you could still toss me aside. Um, it's a very different situation, and it's very much like that, especially for young adults. And when you get older, I think you get wiser. In the tables turn, but not always. You have to go through uh, you have to go through hell before you wise up. Very
1: often. And my hope for the book is that you don't have to that you really can learn from other people's mistakes. I mean, and I think probably most men will go through some levels of hell.